Greetings, and welcome to Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. This is L.J. Ranke, and I'd like to invite you to enjoy with me this simple fact of life. North Dakota and these wide northern plains east of the Rockies and west of the Great Lakes really is and really are a good place to call home. A place with plenty of heart, a place where hope sometimes takes you by surprise. Last week I did an Ole and Lena joke, and Ole and Lena jokes can be a lot of fun. Today I'm going to introduce you to a different Ole and Lena. By telling you the first of many Ole and Lena stories, we're also going to continue the discussion of the NFL National Anthem protest. But first I want to talk about something you've probably never given a lot of thought the magnetic North Pole. Something is happening to it, and I think the Russians may be behind it. Let me start discussing the magnetic North Pole with this simple reminder. There are two North Poles. One is the geographic North Pole, which is at the top of the invisible axis around which our world spins, just like the world globe you'd love to spin as fast as you could when your grade school teacher wasn't looking. But there's a second North Pole, the magnetic North Pole. That's the one your compass points to as North. Two things about the magnetic North Pole. First, it isn't at the geographic North Pole. Second, it moves over time. When it was discovered in 1831, it was on land on a peninsula in Canada's far north. But scientists soon discovered that it was moving slowly. Because of that, every five years, some really important office somewhere publishes the updated latitude and longitude location for the magnetic North Pole. So ships and airlines and cell phones and Google Maps can calculate accurately. Now, before I say more about our migrating magnetic North Pole and its Russian connection, I want to share some things I discovered about the poles that don't move, the geographic North and South Poles. If you think back to that grade school world globe, you'll remember that it was on a tilt. That's because, in relationship to the Earth's orbit around the Sun, Earth's axis, and therefore the invisible North and South Poles at the top and bottom of that axis, are tilted 23.5 degrees off vertical. Because they are at the ends of that axis, the geographic North Pole is always in the same spot. The first thing to know about the geographic, non-moving, end-of-the-spinning axis, North Pole, is that it's underwater in the Arctic Ocean. The geographic South Pole, on the other hand, is on land on the continent of Antarctica. And those two facts prompted an astounding discovery. The size of the Arctic Ocean where the North Pole is found is almost exactly the same size as the continent of Antarctica where the South Pole is found. That means that the ocean at the top of the world and the continent at the bottom of the world are almost exactly the same size. They're both 5.4 million square miles. How big is 5.4 million square miles? Pretty big. That's almost double the size of Australia, or it's the size of the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii, plus British Columbia, plus Alberta, plus Saskatchewan, plus Manitoba, plus all of Mexico. Next, no surprise here, you'll find ice at both the North and South Geographic Poles. Since the geographic North Pole is in the Arctic Ocean, the ice there is a huge ice sheet floating on the ocean. It's not like a towering iceberg, but a large, essentially flat sheet that moves and shifts and crumples and fractures. It's permanent, but it gets bigger and smaller from winter to summer and varies from about 6 feet thick to about 13 feet thick, but can have ridges of ice up to 65 feet thick. The distance between the geographic North Pole on the ocean floor to the sheet of ice floating above it on the surface of the ocean is about 13,500 feet. In North Dakota terms, you would have to stack our 21-story state capitol building in Bismarck on top of itself 55 and a half times to reach from the geographic North Pole on the ocean floor to the ice sheet on the surface above it. To tell you about the ice at the geographic South Pole and Antarctica, let me tell you some things I learned about Antarctica. First, Antarctica has the highest average elevation of any continent in the world. It has huge mountain ranges. And get this, the highest mountain in the lower 48 United States is Mount Whitney in California. There are eight mountains in Antarctica that are higher than Mount Whitney. Eight. 
But the geographic south pole is not in any of Antarctica's mountain ranges. It's actually at a low spot, only 330 feet above sea level. That's equal in height to a single North Dakota state capitol building with about seven floors added. But this is the fact that knocked my socks off. No one has ever stood on land at that south pole, 330 feet above sea level. Why? Because it's covered with ice. And do you know how thick the ice is that's sitting on top of that piece of property known as the South Pole? 9,186 feet. People, the ice on top of the geographic South Pole is one and three quarters miles thick. You'd have to stack the North Dakota State Capitol building on top of itself 38 times to equal the thickness of that ice. 38 North Dakota State Capitol buildings thick. But all of this is just prep for our real topic, the magnetic North Pole and the Russians. Scientists think that the Earth's magnetic poles are created by the fact that the Earth's solid crust and the Earth's solid iron and nickel core spin at different rates. That's possible because between them is a lot of semi-liquid molten magma. The difference in those spin rates, plus the movement of the heat from the core towards the surface, create convection currents in that magma. Those convection currents create a magnetic current, which creates a magnetic field, turning the Earth into a giant magnet. And this magnetic field extends beyond Earth's surface into space, like a giant invisible bubble. That's interesting, but this fact just may drive you to drink. All magnetic fields, including the one generated by the Earth, flow from one pole of the magnetic to the other. Earth's magnetic field flows from the south magnetic pole to the north magnetic pole. And the movement of the magnetic field in that direction means, here it comes, that the Earth's south magnetic pole in Antarctica is actually the north pole of the magnetic field, and the Earth's north magnetic pole in the Arctic is actually the south pole of the magnetic field. Is that crazy or what? But as crazy as that is, there's something very not crazy about it. These magnetic poles preserve life on our planet. The magnetic field bubble surrounding the Earth creates an invisible buffer that protects us from strong solar winds blasting from the sun. Without that buffer, those solar winds would have long ago stripped away Earth's atmosphere. But there's more. Earth's magnetic poles like to party. When a solar storm on the sun blasts a larger-than-normal wave of charged particles towards the Earth, the North and South magnetic poles say, Hey guys, over here! And when those charged particles get pulled toward those magnetic poles, they hit the atoms in the Earth's atmosphere and splash color through the atmosphere like a cosmic disco ball, and we northerners get to see the northern lights. But something is happening to the migrating magnetic north pole that makes the northern light possible. It's always been moving, but it's picking up speed. When it was discovered in 1831, it was about 1,015 miles south of the geographic north pole, about the distance as the crow flies from Bismarck to just past Dallas. But its annual crawl of two or three miles a year has turned into a gallop. Last year, the magnetic North Pole moved 34 miles in one year. By next year, the distance between the magnetic North Pole and the geographic North Pole will not be Bismarck to Dallas as the crow flies, but Bismarck to Sioux Falls, about the same distance as Williston to Grand Forks or Belfield to Fargo. But here's the kicker. If the magnetic North Pole continues at this speed and on this course, guess where it will end up? It will skirt the North Pole and move to the other side of the Arctic Ocean to Siberia. That's Russia, people. And that's all I need to know. Scientists may tell you it's moving because of changing convection currents below the Earth's mantle. Nonsense. If President Trump's election taught us anything, it's that if something doesn't go as we expect, it's the Russians' fault. So here's my idea. President Trump sets up a magnetic North Pole export trade agreement with Canada, Because both of us share the continent where the magnetic North Pole was first found, we declare that the magnetic North Pole belongs to North America. Then, with an export trade agreement in place, we charge an export fee on what the Russians are taking from us, the magnetic North Pole. 
We could charge Russia millions. No, make that billions of dollars because if Russia gets the magnetic North Pole, they get a bigger share of the Northern Lights and they owe us something for that. And if we charge them this export fee, do you know what that means? President Trump gets the money he needs to build the wall paid for by the Russians. Is that brilliant or what? Think about that while we take a quick break. And when we come back, I've got a story to share about Oli and Lena. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome you, as they so often welcomed others, into the lives of Oli and Lena. Today, I want to tell you about an accidental meeting that turned strangers into friends and brought those strangers into Oli's and Lena's home. It all started with mistakes made by two different railroad ticket agents. Those errors meant that a man named Pedro and a man named Ming Hua and their wives ended up in Williston. Neither Ming Hua nor Pedro planned on coming to Williston. Ming and his wife had been living in San Francisco, having arrived from China six months earlier. Their plan to relocate to be with family members living in Chinatown in New York City, where they hoped to open a restaurant, had gotten delayed. When they were trying to buy train tickets in San Francisco for New York, the railroad ticket agent misunderstood Ming who, when he was told that the train leaving for New York was very crowded, said, in his broken English, Well, I stand. The agent thought he said Williston and sold him two tickets to North Dakota. Pedro and his wife had come into the U.S. from Mexico at El Paso. Their plan was to go to St. Louis so Pedro could work with his brother laying brick for the Anheuser-Busch Brewery in South St. Louis. When Pedro was buying his train tickets, the El Paso ticket agent, who hated South Texas, was daydreaming of his grandparents' farm near Granora, North Dakota. In his distraction, he stamped Williston on Pedro's tickets. And that's how the Williston adventure for both families began. ming and his wife met Pedro and his wife when they boarded the same train leaving Chicago. Then something happened in Minneapolis that changed everything. Lena got on the train. Lena had been visiting her younger sister, who years ago had left North Dakota to join the circus, but who ended up becoming a librarian in St. Paul. When Lena got on the train, she took the first open seat she could find, which just happened to be across the aisle from ming and Pedro and their wives. Lena, who always wanted to make strangers feel welcome, and who could see that these couples were indeed strangers to these parts and needed a welcome, struck up a conversation. Despite the language barrier, by the time the train got to Detroit Lakes, Lena knew something about each couple's histories and their dreams. She assured them that even if it was just for a short time, Williston would be a good place for them to land. Before the train crossed the Red River into North Dakota, it started to snow. By the time the train got to Grand Forks, it was a blizzard. By the time it got to Devil's Lake, the drifting across the tracks was so bad the train could not go on. And so Lena and her newfound friends from Mexico and China spent the next 24 hours stuck on the train. Thankfully, the steam lines that heated the railroad car did not give out, so the passengers stayed tolerably warm. Soon after the train stopped, Lena had an idea. She asked them if they'd like to practice English. Yes, they said. And then her good idea became a brilliant idea. Her sister had sent with her a box of old books that the St. Paul Library was throwing away to donate to the James Memorial Library in Williston, which always struggled with its budget for new books. Lena opened the box of used books and began her search. She realized right away that War and Peace wouldn't be a good place to start. There was a copy of Romeo and Juliet, but she knew enough about Shakespeare to know that she didn't know enough about Shakespeare. She set aside the algebra book, no help there. She also quickly set aside the National Geographic magazines. She wouldn't even open them because they probably had pictures of naked natives somewhere. There was a book of poems, but she had taught enough Sunday school to know that it's better to start with simple words and pictures. She kept digging through her box of books. Then, Eureka! 
There at the bottom of the box was exactly what she needed. Fun with Dick and Jane. It was a whole series of six Dick and Jane books. Her newfound friends loved meeting Dick and Jane and Spot. And who couldn't love Sister Sally with that smile and those bouncy curls? The blizzard blew on, but Lena's English students hardly noticed. They were learning English. They were learning it with a Norwegian accent, but they were learning it and loving it. The only time Lena panicked is when Ming Wah's wife saw a copy of National Geographic and started paging through it. Lena started praying really hard. There was an article about ancient shipbuilders in Greece, one about nomadic Mongolian herders, another about Cajuns living in the Louisiana bayou, and one about the tombs in the Egyptian pyramids. But no naked natives anywhere. Thank you, Jesus. 24 hours after the train had stopped, it started to move. It traveled more slowly than normal, of course, and had to stop several more times for shorter periods because of the snow, but the delays just provided more time to study and talk. By the time the train got to Williston, almost two days late, the Dick and Jane group had learned much, laughed often, and bonded well. They even had time to page through the whole stack of National Geographics, none of which had any naked natives anywhere. When Ole met Lena at the train, she introduced him to her new friends, then took him aside to explain that they didn't have the money to buy a ticket anywhere. They both knew there was only one Christian thing they could do. They would invite these new friends to stay in their home until they could work and save enough money to buy tickets to their original destinations. Mingwa and Pedro, and then their wives, soon found jobs. But then something unexpected happened. They fell in love with Williston. Both couples eventually decided to rent their own apartments, and in time, they actually bought their own homes. Eventually, they applied for citizenship, and the day they all became Americans was a proud one indeed. But that's another story. The friendships that began on that train continued as the years went by. Every Christmas, Lena hosted them all with turkey and mashed potatoes, but she also always included lefsa and lutefisk. Her friends actually learned to like lutefisk. Sometimes Lena had to look away, though, because Pedro sprinkled dried pepper on his lutefisk, and Ming Hua doused his lutefisk with soy sauce, then dipped it in his wife's specialty, hot Chinese mustard. At Thanksgiving, Pedro and his wife hosted their friends with a banquet of enchiladas, fajitas, refried beans, Spanish rice, and more. Ole never did learn to like cilantro, but being polite was more important, so he ate everything they put before him. On the 4th of July, Ming Hua and his wife were the hosts and served a veritable feast of fried rice, egg rolls, sesame chicken, and egg drop soup, and the evening always ended with Chinese firecrackers. There are many stories I could tell you about Ole and Lena and their beloved friends, but I need to tell you about how these immigrant families impacted Williston. Mingwa and his wife loved to cook, and the day finally came when their dream came true. They opened their own Chinese restaurant in Williston. Now, two things about Mingwa's restaurant made it somewhat unique in the world of Chinese restaurants. First, on the first Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of every month, Mingwa put lutefisk on the menu. And while that prompted a whole new generation of lutefisk eaters, it did so in a way that caused Norwegian grandparents to cringe. Their Norwegian grandchildren were eating lutefisk with chopsticks, and they were dipping their lutefisk in soy sauce and hot Chinese mustard. There was a second unique thing about Ming Hua's restaurant. Mindful of the history that brought him to North Dakota, he named his restaurant Sea Spot Run. Pedro also impacted Williston lives and families. In Mexico, he was skilled at brick-and-mortar construction. In Williston, he became adept at wood frame construction. He started his own business remodeling homes, which led to building several homes to order, and eventually he opened up an entire neighborhood of spec homes. But in every home that Pedro built, he left what you might call a signature calling card. Mindful of how his life in North Dakota had unfolded, in each home that he built, in the back of a corner kitchen cupboard just below the second shelf, Pedro added a smaller shelf about three inches wide. 
and on that little shelf he placed four things. For himself and his wife, a little statue of the Virgin Mary. For Mingwa and his wife, a set of chopsticks. For Ole and Lena, a little wooden cross. And for the home these families had all come to know in North Dakota, a snow globe with an American flag inside. And that meant that many Lutheran families in Williston had something in their homes no other Lutherans anywhere ever thought of having, a tiny figurine of the Virgin Mary. But they kept that little statue, not because they were Catholics, but because that little statue meant that they had bought a Pedro home. Who would have thought that Lena's kindness on that train would open the door to such blessing? But blessings did flow, with some hope, some heart, and some home. Oh, give me a home where good neighbors still roam, where coffee and kindness come strong. It gets colder than sin, but these words come on in. Keep life warm when the winters get long. Home, this is our home, and like northern lights light our night sky. On this truth we are set, life's to give, not to get, a reason to live and to die. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. And now we're going to visit again the issue we talked about last week, racism and the NFL National Anthem protest. As I said last week, the personal loss known by American blacks, ancestors kidnapped and sold as property, then transported across an ocean, severing ties to one's family, to previous generations, and to one's culture, is one I cannot imagine. Add to that the institutional wrongs committed against blacks after American slavery ended, and you have something like a perfect storm of injustice. Today, racism and racial tensions are real, but we need to be careful. If we turn to shortcut cures despite their emotional appeal, we may contribute to the problem we intend to solve, and we may even misdiagnose as racist any behaviors we simply don't understand. Last week, I identified two errors evident in this kneel for the national anthem protest. The first was a false free speech error. Because they are employees, NFL players voluntarily submit to limits on their speech and their behavior in the stadium on game day. The second error, the take-and-make or I'm-taking-what's-yours-and-making-it-mine error, notes that Kaepernick, who initiated the protest, did so by defining differently the meaning of an action, standing to show respect for one's country, when our culture and the people who engage in that action have already defined the meaning of it, a meaning which in no way is an endorsement of racism. Today I'd like to talk about what I call the Westboro Playbook error, because Kaepernick takes a wrongful shortcut to make his position known publicly. Westboro is a name you may remember. Westboro Baptist is a small church in Topeka, Kansas, which, even though it has only about 40 members, nearly all of whom are related to its now-deceased founding pastor, made national headlines a few years back because of its protest policies. Westboro disagrees with the increased acceptance of homosexuality in our culture. That in itself is not unique. What is unique is Westboro's spin on how that issue connects to current events. Westboro believes that the death of American soldiers in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere is proof that God is punishing America for its changing views on homosexuality. Because Westboro members believe America deserves such judgment, they have staged protests carrying signs that say things I hate even to repeat. God hates fags, or soldiers die for fag marriage, or thank God for dead soldiers, or even pray for more dead soldiers. 
There's a striking inconsistency between Westboro's actions and what its members claim to believe that is evident in its claim to answer the question, why? In this instance, why do American soldiers die? If they really believed the Bible as they claim, they would not answer that question because the Bible says nothing about the deaths of American soldiers. By speaking where the Bible is silent, Westboro violates its own claim to believe the Bible. That inconsistency, claiming to believe the Bible but saying things where the Bible is silent, is not uncommon in churches, but in Westboro's case, it begets a particular cruelty. Westboro members don't hold up their signs about dead soldiers in front of their own church or on Topeka street corners. They travel to the hometowns of the soldiers that are killed, and they protest outside the churches while the funerals for those soldiers are being held. Can you imagine bearing your child with a sign that says, Pray for more dead soldiers as you enter the church for your son's or daughter's funeral? But Westboro's behavior isn't just cruel. It demonstrates a particular kind of selfishness. Ladies and gentlemen, conscience is at the heart of what it means to be human. Therefore, the act of expressing conscience, confessing what one believes about truth, about right and wrong, about being human and the meaning of life, is a profoundly human action deserving reverence and respect even by those who disagree. The time and the place set aside for that expression of conscience are therefore holy, By holy, I don't mean religious, though they often may be. I mean something that is at the very heart of what it means to be a human. Westboro goes to funerals, times and places specifically set aside by others to express their conscience, and then twists those expressions of conscience so as to draw attention to Westboro and its conscience. Westboro members become funeral parasites. By disrespecting others' designated expressions of conscience, Westboro puts itself front and center. Can you disagree with others' expressions of conscience? Of course, at times you must. But because you respect the human conscience, you disagree in a way that honors the time and place set aside by others for expressing theirs. You do not make their time about you. Let me try to illustrate my point this way. Are you dismayed by accounts of priestly sexual abuse? So am I. But even if you are a Catholic, you do not protest that abuse by walking into a Catholic Mass where Catholics are expressing their conscience, what they believe about God and Jesus and truth and life, even about the value of having priests, to stage your protest. You do not use their designated expression of conscience to mount your protest. You express your ideas elsewhere. Do you oppose Muslim terrorists killing innocent victims? So do I. But you do not protest those injustices by walking into a mosque while Muslims are expressing their conscience in worship. That is their time and place, and it deserves your respect. You make your protest elsewhere. Doing so is not to deny your conscience, but to honor others as they express theirs. You see where I'm going with this? Expressing patriotism is an expression of conscience, a confession of what people believe about their country and their citizenship. When they do so at a time specifically set aside for such expression, as when the national anthem is played, you respect that expression even if you disagree in some fashion. You may not feel especially patriotic, okay, but because you regard the human conscience and the time and place designated to express it as a profound exercise of one's humanity, at the time and place designated for that expression, you respond with respect and take responsibility for expressing your disagreement, your conscience, at another time and place. To assert your disagreement at the time and place set aside for others to express their conscience is to follow the Westboro playbook. It's a shortcut action which interrupts true civil discourse. That is why many have reacted so negatively to Colin Kaepernick. Their reaction is not evidence of racism or dismissal of free speech, but of the fact that their deeply held expression of conscience done at the time and place set aside for that expression is being truncated and upstaged by those who want to take a shortcut for making their position known. Even protesters have a duty to which they need to hold themselves accountable 
to honor others, to honor others' expression of conscience at the time and place set aside for doing so, enough to create their own venue to make their claims and, their, and, and to bring their conscience into public discourse. Let me be clear. Colin Kaepernick has a conscience, and he has the right, no, the duty to express his conscience. But he must do so knowing that the designated expression of conscience by those with whom he disagrees is a holy time and place, an exercise in all that it means to be human, and therefore deserving of his respect. He owes others such respect, not only for their sake, but for his own. Such a show of respect is itself an act of conscience and would truly be an example for others to follow. Next week, I've got a North Dakota Lewis and Clark story about a very important set of rattlesnake rattles. I'm also going to tell you about Lena's visit to her sister in St. Paul and introduce you to Pedro's and Mingwa's wives and share with you what Lena and Mingwa's wife discovered in Lena's basement. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I look forward to sharing with you again next week for more Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. Goodbye and God bless. Goodbye.